Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the world. Feast your eyes, ladies and gentlemen, on this on this extraordinary on this extraordinary penumbra of hair because it's coming off tomorrow morning. Do you know why it's coming off tomorrow morning? Because Alex is having his hair cut in order to play top ahead of the Clash in the film. That's very good. That's good, isn't it? Superb. So you might like to get, help yourself to a lock on the way out. You know? yes. <laughs> You'd be happy well, to look, give let's you get. Should we get started? I think we should, actually. Now, I imagine everybody in this room uh, here in the Islington pub in Islington and everybody listening at home uh, would remember, possibly, where they were on the 13th of July, 1985, which, amazingly, is nearly 30 years ago. Well, David and myself were in Wembley Stadium. In fact, all four people on this top panel were in Wembley Stadium. David and myself were, were television uh, anchors. Janice Long. That's I'd anchors. Like to be, please welcome Janice Long. Thank you. From Radio 2 was the, also a TV anchor and a roving reporter backstage. Who just told me, hence you knew absolutely... I didn't know what you were doing at all. (laughs) And Dylan Jones from GQ, the great author, is here. And he was actually in the stadium. Whereabouts were you sitting in in the actual... um, Uh, We we, we were moving around quite a lot. And uh, the... um, Were you near me? uh, Quite possibly, (laughs) yeah. But various points during the day had been designated for, for sort of food and beverage... Uh, runs according to who was on stage. So we were sort of everywhere, the front, back, all around. All, all, Covering all, all the ground. Well, please welcome the fantastic Dylan Jones as well. So, yeah, we were all there, and I think Dave has prepared a series of photographs of uh, four action pictures. Well, Actually, Dylan's isn't quite pictures, an action picture, yeah. but yes. I, I thought, Janice, you'd be delighted to see this. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I got told off. Uh, Johnny Beeling, because I said to Paul Bob Geldof at the time, how are you feeling? And he went, how dare you ask that question? Well, I thought, well, you would, wouldn't you? You know. 
<laughs> after all he'd done. Um, and that outfit. You're wearing something, so it's described. Your... <laughs> what's the, what, Janice, was there a clothing allowance involved? <laughs> we didn't. We didn't no, that, I bought that outfit. Um, I went to mine. a London fashion show week and um, I saw uh, these clothes and I said to the, the girl that you know, designed them, I said, I'll wear those uh, for Live Aid if you don't mind. Um, but the hair uh, was awful. I mean, even more awful. <laughs> even more dreadful. And when I arrived, I got there about half eight in the morning and George Michael's sister was a hairdresser. And she dragged she did that me. To you. Yeah, she, it was her fault. <laughs> she dragged we'll me into on. a stand and did that to me. That but that was great. lovely. Oh, no, I love that. I mean, people might think it's crap, but um, I thought it was lovely. And I kept it until uh, we moved to Liverpool and the wrong clothes went to the dump. Oh, what a shame. Uh, that should be at the VA. I, we, the oh, I put case. all of these clothes into bin bags. And someone went to go to the dump, all like Top of the Pops and Live Aid and what have you. And then someone went to go home and all the wrong clothes went to the dump. And See, it's, inter- it's an interesting point, this. Did you ever think with, these, with any of these things that this is history? Because this man on my left here, he did. He kept every single piece of paper. No. Every, every bit of... I've got the original running order. Should we look at this later? No. Extraordinary. No. So you, you're like me. You just no, thought I it's just, a day's, it's a day's Although work. recently we just moved, and I said to Paul, um, you know, I never kept anything. And he went, no, I have on your behalf. So he's kept backstage passes. Because uh, right, right. I, I never do... I, it, I live in the future. I don't live in the past. Um, so, yeah. But no, we've got a picture. Stuff. We haven't got a picture of Dylan actually at uh, on site, but we are um, very pleased to announce that Dylan's written a superb book called "The Eighties: One Day, One Decade," which uses that particular day, thirteenth of July, as a kind of central axis. Can I just say before I, I answer that that you very kindly invited me to one of these things a couple of years ago, uh, and um, uh, there was a tweet. Some guy in the, in the audience <laughs> tweeted after it says come to see the Silver Seas and I've just walked in and Dylan Jones is on stage. Hashtag arrive too early. <laughs> Maybe he's there tonight. Hashtag fact. <laughs> Declare yourself. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? But you, but, you went, but you went as a, you know, what we would call a punter, didn't you? Yeah, I, I went tell as us, a punter. Tell us what you were doing at the time. What well, were your I was, circumstances? I was, I was a very snotty uh, style journalist and I was editing a magazine called ID, which is still going at, at the time. And um, uh, everyone in our office was very snotty about Live Aid because it was too sort of mainstream and too sort of big and too sort of populist. And I was kind of fascinated by it. And like you, I knew that, well, A, I wanted to go, and, and B, I kind of knew this was really, really important. Why are you different? Sorry? Why are you different from those people? Uh, well, I'm not. Maybe I was slightly less snotty than everyone I was working with. But um, I knew it was going to be important. Uh, in fact, there was a, my girlfriend at the time, her father was a songwriter, um, and he managed to give us, he had these... Uh, I think if you spent £100, you could have a sort of backstage ticket. But we didn't want that. We wanted the experience. We wanted to have the punter experience. We wanted to be there with everyone. Uh, Although it was against every... You know, my sort of 
my nature, really. I just knew it was going to be something that you really wanted to be at. But also, that's a really good point, that we forget that in 1985, actually, the old guard, as we now laughingly call them, they're actually over only about 40. Paul McCartney, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Eric Clapton, all those guys had kind of fizzled out slightly. Yeah, but they I mean, were the they, ones they who really worked. They weren't the great epic, uh, you know, Easter Island legends that they are now. And, and so it did seem a kind of, uh, you know, a, a weirdly mainstream event, didn't it? it yeah, but for, for a lot of people, it was the first time, for me, it was a lot of, the first time you'd seen those people. Plus, apart from possibly Sade, I don't think any of the sort of contemporary groups had much of a you know, much of a day, and plus a lot of those people have disappeared, haven't they? The, the, the Paul Youngs and yeah. Howard Jones and Nick Kershaws of this world. And it was, it was the old guard, it was the Elton Johns, the David Bowies, and in particular the, the, the Queen. I mean, Queen was one of, those t- one of those moments during the day where it had been designated as a burger run. Because <laughs> I... I absolutely hated Queen. I hated everything they stood for. I hated their music. There was nothing about them that I was interested in. Nothing. And like everyone else who was there, and like everyone else who saw it on television, I was completely mes- mesmerised, and, and to this day have never seen a, a better um, stadium performance. It was absolutely extraordinary. You watch it on YouTube now, and it's sort of my most, most perfect sort of 15 minutes... Of, of stadium rock, absolutely mesmerising. The reason being that they, they, they hired a studio, didn't they? Was it? Down yeah, they the rehearsed studio, for a I week. Think, in Twickenham for a week, and just worked and worked yeah. and worked at this greatest hits medley. It wasn't in Twickenham, it, it was just off the strand. Off the strand? Sorry oh. to. No, be a, absolutely. Be a right. I stand corrected. <laughs> it was no, no. just off the strand. I'll sack myself after this. <laughs> <laughs> See me, could do better. So. <laughs> Hashtag hot. Yes, yes. And hashtag Dave as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Go on. So what went on there? I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I've, go, I've gone down in history as the man that when, when Bob Geldof allegedly said, give us your fucking money. Fucking he never said, he didn't say anything of the kind. He said, he said, fuck the address. And it was all to do with the order in which the appeals were done which the BBC were very insistent... So what was going on in your ear? Did you have an earpiece? I had a very, very different earpiece. At one point, what was going on in my head was just a howling... (laughs) Howling terror, you know... Because people only stop to tell you that you are now addressing the biggest TV audience that there had ever been in the world. No, it's not a helpful thing. And... um, and all I could think when he when he when he said "fuck the address," and I thought, mm, mm, was I do hope my mum's not watching. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. But you know, and, and I was the poor sap who was up there in the in the. This is it. I don't even remember in the old Wembley. There used to be the kind of commentary point up in the in the underneath the the rafters of the place. Where Des Lynham used to do... It was known as the Jimmy Hill commentary box, Well, it was, it? it was where they used to do summarising bits yeah. in the kind of in the middle of internationals and FA Cup finals and whatever. And it was a perspex box. So basically... So were you sweating? God, it was like a Tupperware container. <laughs> <laughs> it was just unbelievably hot. They wire you in. You couldn't go anywhere. Okay. You couldn't, the nearest lavatory was down various catwalks and ladder, you know, death-defying... <laughs> Ladders and so forth. You were stuck up there, and uh, you know. In the, the talkback at one stage, they gave you 
open talkback, which meant you weren't just hearing from the director, you were hearing from every director in the world. So you have all that. They, they were going, you know, Moscow's lost Beijing or whatever. Phil. <laughs> That's no, no help at all. But anyway, the only reason I put this picture of, uh, of me alongside a legend of the day is in order to follow it with this picture of Mark with another legend of the day. All the great. I had some oh, classic that, interviews that there on. I don't have to tell you, that's Super a mighty Supollard. <laughs> I, I started off quite well with uh, members of Queen, and I think I had Sade. And then the next thing I knew, I was interviewing David Essex. Something had gone a bit wrong. And <laughs> David Essex, basically I the whole of Shaftesbury Avenue. Well. I, I was doing my bit from Legends uh, Nightclub of, yeah, off, off of Piccadilly. You remember? Yeah. Yeah, and, I was there. Uh, and I had to do the, the American uh, leg from, from, when the, from when Wembley ended Both at 10 o'clock. We, we, we did that with Mike mm. Smith, do you remember? Yes. And Andy Kershaw, I think. And uh, basically it was that awkward moment before the superstars of Wembley had come down from Wembley <laughs> when you had no one to interview. And that's when Sue Pollard <laughs> came into, into her own. And all I remember was just exactly what David said, actually, is you had this earpiece, and the earpiece would be going, OK, and I had to throw to... Do you remember, to Jack Nicholson and Chevy Chase? Do you remember doing the American stage? Yes. So you'd have this voice in your ear going, um, OK, OK, so, so Mark, Mark, to, Mark to Philadelphia. Philadelphia to George Thorogood and Destroyers. To, no, to, to Jack Nicholson, to, to Chevy Chase. No, Mark back to, to Queen. No, not, no. It's going to be the Pretenders. It's, not, it's Mark talking to Sue Pollard. In three, <laughs> two, one. And you'd look round... And you'd be, in fact, I'm laughing, I can't believe this. It is Sue Pollard. And, and Sue was very concerned about the plight of people in Africa all and also telling us all about a, a place she was in in Shaftesbury Avenue, which was tickets were still available. I'm big on time. I'll have to edit that out, actually. There's a serious point here that, that underneath it all, it was, it was a kind of telly that BBC just doesn't do anymore. That underneath it all, it was a kind of end of the pier show, wasn't it? You know, it was chaos. Oh, completely. It was... I mean, while you were doing Sue Pollard, then they were handing over to me in the same building and David Essex, go David Essex, go Robbie Aldrain, yeah. go whatever. And we were watching the screens, weren't we, of the whole Philadelphia thing? Um, chaos. But meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, that was happening. <laughs> we're having t shirts made of this. Yeah, I've, I've, actually, I've never seen that picture. I rather hope it didn't exist. It's on, it's on the internet. <laughs> Can you remember what she said to you? I can't remember a thing, because that's the other thing. Really? I don't know about you, but it, it was... It was it, the, the, David's point is absolutely right, that throughout the day, and you probably weren't so aware of this, Dylan, because you might not have been listening to any radio broadcasts, but you would have heard some stuff from the stage, but throughout the day, the size of the event, the scale of it, began to build in the most terrifying way if you were one of the television anchors you know because it doesn't help being told that the whole world is watching at one point we were told 95 percent of all television sets in the world are tuned to live aid well, that, that's, that's not true but but it's still it, it was a lot of people watching and the other thing was the the, the, the phrase a billion i know i'm always the scariest saying this, thing people for say me. how many people are watching and they say a billion or well, the scariest thing you say, how many is a billion nobody knew just you know a billion go on uh, sorry uh, uh, the scariest thing for me was status quo was opening and they were going to be doing rocking all over the world. Do, 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 do. Um, and I was standing at the side of the stage because that's that your my status job. quo impression? Yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant. Is that three chords? <laughs> um, so I was standing at the side of the stage because when they finished, I was meant to interview them and Bob Geldof. And uh, just before the whole thing started, they said to me, 
for, for about do 14 I do? hours. I am not a stand-up comedian. Can I possibly go out and fill for status quo doing three songs? And I was like that. Oh, my God. And my stomach was churning. And I never churn, because you're a broadcaster, you know, and you do what you do. But I was absolutely cacking myself at that moment. And the only person at the side of the stage was Tony Hadley. And... Um, <laughs> Is that the man you see in your dreams in a crisis? <laughs> he just happened to be there. Um, and, and it happened. It worked. And we actually cried. Because I was so terrified. Could I go on? And, you know, fill the status Tony quo. Hadley had bought his, his mum, his dad, his grandmother. Did remember? he? Yeah, his sister, some of his cousins. Really? Yeah, yeah. I made a whole entourage with him. And you got into the, the sacred backstage area. Did you see Elton John's barbecue? Which I, I only briefly saw Elton John since. on a little barbecue. He's wearing a pinny, a little striped no, apron, and he, he put on a veggie burger for Freddie Mercury. You can fuck off. The ticket... Yep. I mean, the, the first... I was looking at this today, and the first surprise is... What is that? How much are you paying? £25 or something? £25, yeah. 25. Sorry, £25. 25. Pounds. Did that seem a lot at the time? Well, it seemed like a fortune, but it, it, but, it, but, it, but it didn't seem like it wasn't worth it. I think that what you, what you can't forget is that the, the sense of anticipation, the excitement about this event was absolutely enormous. It was much bigger than anything I can, that, that, that you can equate... To these days, I think, um, and also it was the first time that anything like that had been done. And will never happen again. I, I don't think. Well, I don't think it can happen like this. And also, I don't think people would want it to happen in the same ways. It certainly wouldn't have the same effect. I don't think. See, I, I don't remember this anticipation at all. Because I'd, I'd gone through this odd thing of of the Band Aid record that they said, "Oh, Bob Geldof's getting a bunch of people together to do a charity record." pop down to Psalm Studios or whatever it's called, you know, with the whistle test crew and see who turns up. And we're all like, Pop Keldoff, who's going to turn up, you know? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm serious. His career was, you know, the Boomtown Rats were over, weren't they? And uh, They hadn't had a hit for three years, actually. And, he, you know, and... Uh, banana so I go there and, you know, Sting's there and Paul Weller's there and Boy George comes later or whatever and then George Michael turns up, you know, and it, it just slowly through the day you realise that it, it was building up. But even with this, I'm sure I wasn't utterly convinced that it was all going to occur. You know, we had a meeting, well, didn't we, the day before? I've actually brought in the, old, the running orders. I know, I've still got the original running order. And this is from the meeting that we had uh, in Egerton House on the 11th of July. And actually, it's interesting how different it is. There's, there's an opening ceremony with a, with a royal salute and a fanfare and a, a speech by HRH Prince of Wales. I don't remember that happening at all. No, it just turned up really late, didn't they? And Janice would have had to fill anyway, so... <laughs> And then there's a link, here we are, at uh, 11 minutes past one, there is a link to Trent Bridge. Richard Skinner is going to link to Trent Bridge and interview Bob Willis, Ian Botham and A.N. Other. <laughs> I mean, Anybody that's a really good that? idea, actually. Ian Botham was a huge star at the time, so anything to get the, the charity money rolling in. There's a classic, there's another great one, where is it? Um, here we are, at uh, 21.14, uh, quarter, quarter past nine in the evening, Dave Hepworth, intro to Cat Stevens. <laughs> So Cat Stevens was going to play Live Aid two days beforehand, apparently going to play Live Aid. I don't remember Cat Stevens being on. Anybody else? No. He was apparently there. He's probably still waiting. But you know what Bob did? I mean, he did this whole thing where he actually said, Brian Ferry is playing, 
uh, Queen are playing, um, whoever, Elton John. And actually, he'd never booked them. So he issued it to the press and then gave it to them to go, uh, yeah. no, we're, we're not. not. No, we're not. And then he went, well, you tell the press. Yeah. So he'd actually booked them and made it all happen. Ah, that stroke of genius. It's absolute genius. There's, um, there's uh, some, some filmed footage of the, ni- the night that, that Bob Geldof starts talking about the fact that he's just seen Michael Burke's film the previous night. There was um, an arena on BBC Two. There was a, um, a film by a guy called Nigel Finch, the director, and it was called Ligmalion. And it was all about ligging in London, becoming successful by basically ligging your way around London. Peter York was in it. Bob Elms. <laughs> For my sins, I was in it. Lots of other people. And there was some footage done at the launch of Peter York's second book called Modern Times, which is, talk about the minutiae of pop, um, the, the follow-up to Style Wars. And it's basically a, a cocktail party. It's the launch of his book, and he's just going around filming people, chit-chatting. And in it, you can see Geldof talking about this stuff that he's seen on the BBC News. And he tells us, you can see him being... The more he's filmed, the more animated he becomes, the more, you know, he has another glass of wine, and, and it sort of accelerates and becomes more amplified. And by the end of the evening, you can see that he's incredibly worked up and actually keeps saying that he's going to do something about it. And you look at it in isolation, you think it's just this, but then obviously, literally eight hours later, he's on the telephone. And he was well enough connected to do it. He called everyone. He he knew everyone. He also had nothing else to do. Oh, that's rude. No, I'm a serious You're a mean person, David Mean person. Boomtowns were over. I'm sorry. If the Boomtown Rats had been at number one, they would have been on tour. He had the time to do it. And he was uniquely qualified. He had the energies and he had the gab. And he was also, he's got a streak of a bully in him, which is what you need to make a thing like that happen. You can't just reason with people. You've got to roll all over people. Well, actually, the other As technique... As Janet says, you've yeah. got to say, we've announced you already. Well, now, the, other, the, other technique, the other technique he used was just, just to tell groups that if they didn't reform and didn't play, they would, as a consequence, make less money and more people would not survive. So you had to have that on your conscience the rest of your life. Bruce Springsteen, who, who he pursued, didn't he? He was trying desperately. The whole thing was Bruce, he was trying to get Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen to play, stage, and he didn't play. It was his stage that they played. He used his stage. He'd played yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. at Wembley. Well, Harvey, Harvey Goldsmith says that they would spend sort of 18, 20 hours a day together, and then uh, they'd leave. They'd go home at sort of one, one or two o'clock in the morning, having agreed everything. And then they'd meet again at sort of seven or eight in the morning and Geldof had completely changed everything. <laughs> completely moved the goalposts, the parameters of the change. Um, and so this, went, this was a, a daily occurrence. And every time they'd... No, but I was going to say, that, that, just, just, just to butt in there, that, that, that actually the chaos that you're talking about was what really made it... I don't know if anybody watching would remember U2's uh, appearance on this show, but yeah. that was a really pivotal moment because... Um, I've got a picture of it. Got picture of it. Because it, what actually happened, if I remember rightly... I mean, you were probably quite near the stage, weren't you? I was well, no, just around the side of the stage. The, the, yeah. the U2 moment, we were so... And this is true. Well, just, this is true. We were so far away from the stage that my girlfriend thought they were playing in Philadelphia. 
And that, that, that is an acute line. That's true. That's superb. Well, I was just right down, just, just beyond where his knee is, actually, down there watching. I could see the whole thing really clearly. And, you know, what, what happened, lest we forget, is that, is that part of their stage act at the time used to be that Bono would invite a girl in the crowd to come up and dance with him on the stage. But he hadn't realised how complicated he was going to be getting off this stage and getting down. And when he eventually got down there... And he, Invited her. Oh, the microphone's gone out. Something's happened. I don't know. Anyway, and invited a girl to come and dance with. She couldn't get through the crowd and pass the security, so he invited another girl, and then and then eventually she could. And by the time he'd invited a third girl, the first girl had got through the crowd, and then he went back to the second part of the stage, and the second girl had also got. So the two girls waited another, and the group, the other three members of you two, had not the faintest idea what was going on. Because they had no television monitors, they couldn't see. As far as they said, he might have just fallen off the stage and broken his neck. So, and they were—they knew that they'd used up one whole song. They had, yeah. I think, four songs to play. Am I right? And they but just carried on playing the song. It nearly caused them to split up. Because, it, absolutely. And then Paul McGuinness says that they were in the—they all went off to their respective places in Ireland and France and wherever, and um, they didn't talk to each other for a week. And he was on the phone to Bono, and Bono says that he thought that he was about to be kicked out of the band. And then Paul McGuinness went to these, his local newsagents in, in wherever he is in the south of France um, and bought the Sunday newspapers of the following week and suddenly saw the acclaim and the way in which this event had been treated yeah. and their performance had been treated and realised that it was an enormous happy accident... Uh, and in fact, all their records went back into the charts. All went back into and the And like charts. Queen, they were one of the, the, the big beneficiaries of the event commercially. Yes. All there went I back am. Into Look, see me? <laughs> yeah. Right there. Black MA1 flying jacket. I think it's worth having this picture just to, just to emphasize the key thing that made it work the weather. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just, you know. Uh, you know, oh, it, the sun shone about, yeah, absolutely yeah, you, all day. You had no idea of that, did you? You were stuck in some kind well, of... Well, no, I knew it was damned hot. And when, and when, they, when they let me out occasionally, I could go up there and see it was a blue sky and people with shirts off. But that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why Live 8 wasn't the event that everyone hoped it would be. Because it wasn't sunny. It's a, yeah. it's a banal thing to say, but it's no, absolutely it's true. Absolutely no, true. true. I um, had this extraordinary experience very briefly when I had to leave the stadium at about, I must be about five or six in the evening to go down to Legends to do our, to our, Legends. our bit. Legends? Right BBC cab waiting for me. Talk to Sue London. Pollard. And the, to talk to Sue Pollard. Sue was just, you know, David, Sue, all the gang were waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> she won't hang on forever. She won't. She's not going to talk to David Hackworth. She's, she's asked for you by name. But anyway, so I'm in this cab and what I realised was that the whole of London, I know I've said this before, but it was extraordinary, the whole of London was absolutely... It was quiet, apart from the sound of the Live Aid. So coming from radios in the park, radios on the street, from open windows with the television broadcast on, the smell of barbecues. I just remember the whole of London just smelled of scorched steak and sausages. It was fabulous. And everybody, you'd go down the street and you'd hear the same song coming out of the same window. And it was just oh, incredible. And at that point, I realised that really everybody was really was watching. Across the whole of the country. Uh, the whole country, exactly. It was astonishing. The, the one... It's interesting to focus on the, on the crowd. Just one of the points, Dylan, you make in your book is that they were they were a very normal crowd, weren't they? They weren't a kind of it was everybody. Hipster no, in fact, it seemed to be populated by people who didn't go to concerts um, and were there for the event. It was an event. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a. It, it, it wasn't a musical event. 
And actually, the sort of music was the least interesting part of the whole experience. Apart from the, the Queen performance, which is exemplary, everything else was fairly mediocre, even the sort of stuff at the end when the good people were on, you know. Um, it, was, it was about the experience. In fact, I remember one of the most important things for me was the journey home took forever and I think you, I think it was it Wembley Park I think it, yes. that was the tube yeah. station and I lived in Brixton and at that time I think it was either the Jubilee or the Bakerloo and you changed to Victoria and got onto the Victoria line to, and it took forever to get home but the only thing I can remember is the fact that the, the, all the carriages were full when you could eventually get onto one and everybody sang the song and it was the song of a hundred verses because people just sang do you know Christmas Forever. And yeah. it, you know, for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Just kept going and go. And it's the kind of thing you think this is going to drive me nuts, but it didn't. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened with the average rock crowd, would it? The average bunch of fans. I don't think so. There was a, a genuine sense of, euphor- of euphoria. In fact, I think one of, the, um, one of the initial ways with which the press used to berate. Geldof and the way that the money was channeled and also the way that the thing was organised in the first place was the fact that this was a populist event, that an event like this that was charity driven about uh, aid and about the third world had been co-opted by people who weren't in the Socialist Workers Party. It was a mainstream event that was that was indulged by everybody. That was, I mean, it was, it, it was. I mean, comic relief came out of this. You can't imagine yeah, comic exactly. relief with, and comic relief is one of those things like Marks and Spencers. I mean, it's yes. just part of the fabric yeah. of life, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and we all love it. Your your point about the quality of the performances, I, I wonder to, to most people whether that really mattered. I think I think what you just thought was that, that these people had taken part. It I don't, didn't I don't think you, you weren't sort of sitting there judging whether the Who were any good. In fact, the Who were off screen for seventeen yeah. minutes because of the technical failure. And were terrible. But, uh, I've just had another memory actually, which is Band Aid. You were talking about when I watched the chorus being recorded of the Band Aid record, and Rick Parfit of Status Quo came up to me and said, "Feed the Welsh," <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is pretty funny actually. <laughs> We're not going back to this. <laughs> but I think it's wrong, isn't it? It's wrong. You're not Rick, taking it seriously. Rick, Rick Parfit famously said that after performing Rockin' All Over the World, they all left and they, and they went on a pub crawl and then came back at the end of the day for the, um, for the finale. Absolutely blind Blast, drunk and yeah, you probably see him and accelerated. I think by various forms of narcotics. So. <laughs> I'm sure, allegedly. Oh. But the the um, the, the, you know, the ridge the, is there the crowd, yeah, in, in a tartan frock tartan, coat. Tartan, Thank you. The crowd was such an important you know facet of the whole entertainment, weren't they? As television, you know what I mean. That the crowd starred in the show Completely. as much as anything else. The things we remember are, like you say, the girl that couldn't find her way to on stage with Bono. Or, you know, people doing the, whatever that is, that's Radio Gaga, isn't but, it? But God, also, I just they, remembered... I remember. They, 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 they lent those smaller groups, like Sade. I think one of you interviewed Sade and said, so what's it like? And then she said, like, well, you know, I, I, I often spend Saturday performing to 100,000 people. What do you think, you know? And it, well, no, she, and said, it eleva- she made a good point. She said it was like school sports day. And it elevated like, oh, a lot of those bands said, yeah. to a status that they previously never dreamed of. Yeah, no, the, she, I thought you know, was a good point. She said it was like They've been performing days. in the WAG Club. Exactly. You know? I've, got, I've got to throw in my, um, my um, memory just of just the, the chaos of the day. You know, that you, you said somebody interviewed Chardé... 
And then I thought about it. I thought, yeah, that was me, actually. I'd completely forgotten. And, um, and I, was, I was up in that person. Tupperware container says working, uh, and uh, I was there with Andrew Ridgely and Fish, and you know, Fish, God knows who. Fish was Fish and there. Sue Pollard in the same place at the same time. <laughs> and, All great. And the the the, junior, the assistant producers would occasionally come up and just put somebody on the end of the sofa, out of camera, like what? and they pushed this guy on the end of the sofa, and I looked at May Miller, who was you know May Miller, you know May. It was I a remember May Miller. And uh, when I was off, uh, off camera and I went, who's that? <laughs> and she went, it's no word of a lie. She said, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I actually I had to take my courage in my hands and say, well, we've now been joined by Ian Asprey of the cult. <laughs> God, it was, you know. I, I think, I think there was actually a slightly, almost a worse one than that. You remember when John Hurt arrived? Oh, God. Because, again, they were having to fill because if there was a mechanical failure... And the, there was a, a circular stage, I'm sure you can remember, which was in three sections, yeah, yeah. and it clicked round every 20 minutes. And so when the group were playing, there was another section where the next set of equipment was being set up and the next last set was being dismantled. They clicked round on... The, and there was a clock, do you remember, underneath the stage? Yeah, telling yeah. you how long you got with a series of traffic lights that you couldn't overrun, you know. <laughs> traffic lights, you red, exist. green, and back to amber, etc. And, uh, you know, the... Um, what are we talking about? Completely forgotten now. Uh, I've lost my train. <laughs> John, John Hurt. John Hurt. John Hurt. John Hurt. John Hurt. John Hurt. Sorry, I've suddenly got into a thing about revolving stages. John Hurt. So we're, to fill, we had to sit. Sorry, <laughs> senior moment. We had to. We had to get people into the commentary box to sit there, and, and you know Billy Connolly and Pamela Seams and all the people that you had, didn't you? And uh, John Hurt arrived and was never introduced to Andy Kershaw, who was interviewing him. And Andy Kershaw did not recognise him. <laughs> so Andy Kershaw, for about two... It's a priceless man. piece of it. He'd just done The Elephant Man, although he didn't look like The Elephant Man, clearly. <laughs> but he, Andy had no idea. And very sweetly, John Hurt realised that Andy didn't know. Because Andy was sort of kind of fishing around. So have you been, um, been busy? How been, you, been busy? How are you? How are you? Been busy? Busy recently? He thought he was probably the yeah the bass player of, of, of George Thorogood and the Destroyers. I was like, I had no idea. And eventually, John Kurt very sweetly started saying, "Well, dear boy, I have been treading the boards for many years and all this kind of stuff." And, I, and eventually, the penny dropped. But that was the kind of level of utter chaos, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell him about Billy Connolly. Go on. What, he, what he said. Go on. Tell him about Billy Connolly. Yeah. <laughs> Is this my guy again, uh, Terry? Um, as Oh, look at this. It's so professional, isn't it? Shaking mics. Get that um, with cheesy, I'm they... sure. With altered images. Cheesy wasn't that good. <laughs> I, was up, I was up in the Tupperware uh, container with uh, Billy Connolly and Pamela Stevenson, and the Pretenders were on, and this was not long after James Honeyman Scott and Martin... No, what was the other one that died? Uh, Fondon. Pete, Pete Fondon. Pete Fondon. Two members of the Pretenders had died... Not that long before. And Connolly leaned over to me and said, I wouldn't join that group. <laughs> and, and I said, Why not? It's just nobody leaves. <laughs> it's a great shame it wasn't broadcast that day. Because you weren't allowed to have any humour, you know, on. actually. Very funny. You know, on, so when did camera. you clock off the whole thing? What was the end? Where did you actually... 
Well, I escaped from Wembley. It took about two hours to get out of the car park, I remember, you know. And uh, I finished broadcasting probably about 8 o'clock or something like that. I was at the 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock, something like that. We were there. We, I was there. Still then I was at 4 o'clock in the morning. You're the morning. legends. Yeah, yeah. I was I a legend. Have you yeah. got a picture of that last bit of legends? The thing is, a lot of people went home to watch the American legs yes. on television. Yeah, like, yeah. In fact, one of my, one of my favourite stories about Live Aid is actually courtesy of, of Mark. Uh, when I wrote this book, um, uh, Mark very kindly agreed to be interviewed, and he gave me, he said, uh, when, when we'd finished the interview, he said, I, I remember I've got these tapes of Keith Richards rehearsing with Bob Dylan and Ronnie Wood. I think, oh, great, whatever. Um, and then he very kindly sent me these things as, as files. Um, and they're hours of them, hours and hours and hours. And the, and the reason you realise that Bob Dylan was so awful when he was playing with Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood is because during their rehearsal period, they spent about three days rehearsing. And the tapes that Mark sent me are almost in real time. And it's basically... They're going around to, I think, Ronnie Woods... Ronnie Woods' house. Ronnie Woods' New house in, uh, in the Upper East Side in New York. And they're basically sitting around chatting. And then they decide to um, rehearse. But before they do that, they decide what they're going to drink whilst they're rehearsing. And it's like listening to someone ordering a Chinese takeaway. Because <laughs> Bob Dylan's going, well, I want some whiskey. And uh, I won't do the, the accents. And then, and then Keith Richards says, no, I want some tequila... And then, now I want some tequila and some gin. And this basically goes on for 45 minutes. I'm saying, uh, now I want this and I want that. I mean, it's, it's beyond parody. They beyond parody. This is, I don't know how I... Actually, I do know who gave me this. It was a bootleg. Obviously, it was in Ronnie's house and the engineer must have just left a tape running. I just couldn't resist giving it to people. And they just... They're meant to be rehearsing. Are we going to... Shall, shall I tell the story? I'm going to say, these are... You know, what are the most striking performances well, of the day just, in one way or another? You know? I'll, just, I'll just finish this because... Because uh, in, the, in the bootleg, they're... Basically, they just sit around gossiping about Mick Taylor, don't they? And every now and again, Keith goes, hey, what's, what are you going to play? What sort of songs, you know? And Bob goes, oh, I don't know. Let's, we'll make it up at the time, you know? And, uh, and Ronnie goes, lads, lads, we really need to kind of think of something, you know? And then they, and then they decide they're all going to travel down. Do you remember this bit? I don't know how much of it you listen to. In the same vehicle to give them more rehearsal time. But they've got such huge or less entourages with them that they have to go in three separate uh, uh, you know, cars. They go to Philadelphia. They spent, um, there's no legal problem, me telling you this, they spent the whole day in a well-stocked cop- corporate hospitality tent. <laughs> and when they arrive, j- just cutting a very long story short, j- j- Nicholson introduces them. Do-, do you remember this? Anybody remember this? It was four o'clock in the morning. Absolutely bad. Jack Nicholson, I can remember his exact words. He said, he said, it gives me great personal pleasure to introduce the voice of a generation. It can only be one man. The transcendent Bob Dylan! It's just incredible. And Bob, uh, there's 30 seconds when nothing happens at all. Look at curtains. <laughs> curtains sort of move like... It's like Eric Morecambe and Wise. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's <laughs> a fast a brown Bob shopping comes bag. On, he's, and he's got, weird, some reason, he's wearing eye makeup, and, uh, and, uh, which is running in the heat. He's obviously had a drink. And he said, I'd like to bring on Keith Richard and Ronnie Wood, but I don't know where they are. <laughs> I promise you, I've got a tape of this. That's what he says. Keith then comes on, who's clearly had even more drink than, in a weird waistcoat with only one button on it and a cigarette in his mouth. Then on comes Ronnie with a guitar attitude and they start playing a song called The Ballad of Hollis Brown on the second Dylan album, which Ronnie Wood doesn't know. 
and I know this because no, no, I interviewed no. him for Elle magazine a week later, and I had to say, look, Ronnie, what happened? And he said, I don't know, mate. I mean, you know, we, 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 we should have rehearsed. We should have rehearsed. I'll be honest with you. We should have. He said, we'd all, we'd all had a drink. And he said, he said, we went on, then we started playing a song. I thought we were playing a song called The Ballad of Collis Brown. I thought we were singing about a cough medicine. So he's singing to the world's biggest television audience a song he doesn't know. Unbelievable. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. I loved it. Anyway, but, that's how it ended. But, but striking performances of one kind or another, you know, they... Adam, Adam, who was on there because... Adam Ant is the only managed... person who decided to play some new material. <laughs> and he played his latest single forgiven. called Viva La Rock. Viva La Rock. Which was not only an appalling song, but obviously people t- t- could, could smell the expediency yeah. and just said, Adam Ant, your career is over. And it was. And there he, and then, he, at three o'clock in the afternoon. He was on July the 13th, that, 1985. That. He was only on there because he was managed by Miles Copeland at the same at the time, wasn't he? Right. And if, yeah, someone, yeah, if, yeah. if you want Sting, yeah, you have you're to have the boy as well, you know. And uh, the, the, the Queen picture, I do think, is interesting that, that, that when you look at Queen, you look at the footage of them doing it, the cameraman plays such a part. You know, what he was doing was performing for the camera using the crowd as a background. You know what I mean? Yeah, he addresses it, so much of it, to the camera. He drags that cameraman around with yeah. him. Yeah, exactly yeah, but also, you can look at that performance now. In fact, if you go to... If you see a very big um, stadium act performing in, in, an, in an arena or in a small venue, you take someone like Elton John, they cannot stop themselves doing the, um, the gestures and the hand movements and acting as though they're playing in a stadium. Oh, because they're so used to playing a stadium well, this was that the they be- can't scale it down. This was the beginning what, that, of this. That's what Freddie Mercury did for the first time. This, this was the beginning yeah. of, you know, apart from anything else, if, if Live Aid achieved one thing in entertainment terms, it was to convince the huge mass audience that it would be really good to go to a big stadium yeah. and see a big band well, doing fact, loads of in, hits. In, in fact, for three or four years after that, everybody wanted to play stadiums. Yeah. So you'd go to Wembley Stadium and you'd see... Michael Jackson, who couldn't, could, who couldn't perform in a stadium. You see Madonna, who couldn't perform in a stadium. The only one who could was Prince when he played in the round at yeah. Wembley Arena. But so many people, as you say, tried to play stadium after that and just couldn't hack it because they just didn't understand how to do it and they weren't the practitioners of the kind of music that worked in a stadium. But it was an amazing illusion, really, for the television audience to see the smaller members of the team, the Sade's, the Howard Joneses, the Spandau Ballets, playing to 80,000 people. And you got the kind of distorted impression it was their crowd somehow. That was the state, of, that was the level they were at. It so it never, massively re- accelerated the career of the, of the young guy. It was and also Nick, rebooted it, the it was never Nick Kershaw's guy. crowd again, though, was no, it? No, it's true, no, to be fair. <laughs> Yeah, and and it remains so. Straight back to High so. with you. Yeah. To the nag's head. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so then, the day after... God, the, funny, uh, I've actually yeah. brought this in. I was know. reading this on the tube coming in, and the bloke opposite me really was confused. <laughs> Everybody else... Uh, everyone else is reading the Evening Standard. Fuck, has it happened again? And I'm reading... He's going, well, I've fallen through a wormhole in time, he was thinking... <laughs> So I'm reading a copy of the Daily Mirror from the day after Live Aid. What a terrible headline, by the way. Rocked with love. What the hell was that? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of love, I don't think. No, I don't think so. the, um, anyway. the, I only realised what a big thing it had been. The following day, I'd, I'd stupidly agreed to go and interview Viv Richards, the cricketer, 
for a, BBC used to have a thing at the time where famous celebrities chose a bunch of famous video, uh, favourite videos. They said, would you like to go and do Viv, Viv Richards? I said, I'd love to meet Viv Richards. So I go along the following day after having about two hours sleep. I go to the nursery at, at Lord's and there's Viv Richards. And he looks at me, he goes, Live Aid? I said, are we watching it? He said... You thought you were Robert Palmer. <laughs> He said, that he'd been captaining Somerset, I think, at the time of playing Middlesex. He said, I had players trying to get out, to get back in the pavilion and watch it. You know, because you, you only realise how big it was when you talk to people afterwards. It's only when I talked to my wife when I got home that, you know, oh, we've been watching it, everybody's been watching it, the neighbours have been watching it, they've been ringing each other up saying, you should watch it. You, know? you look at the coverage, and in fact you show the mirror here, and you look at all the national papers, and then you compare that to, way, to the way that the concert was treated by the music press. Yes. Because it had been, they were completely side because it had yeah, been yeah. co-opted by the mass media, which was something that they... This was another reason to beat really? up Geldof. Yeah. Because they'd taken their beloved Absolutely. sort of genre and, yes. and it'd been co-opted and made it literally popular. by everybody. Popularised it. Popularized. You no longer own it. This is yeah. owned by different people. Completely. And which gave rise to Q magazine and everything it that, that, that came the in its wake. the relationship between the popular, the, the, the popular press, the, 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 the tabloids and, yeah. the, and the broadcast and, it's all, and rock music. The only thing that the NME could do was disparage it and diminish yeah. it. And because talk about it why? in incredibly it reductive cool. terms. Because the artists weren't cool, or uh, it wasn't cool. It would all. It also didn't fit their political agenda. It was something else, which I thought was rather brilliant, actually. So it's absolutely true because before Live Aid, let's not forget that the newspapers didn't really write about pop music unless it was in the news pages. If it was a news story, if a member of the Rolling Stones was caught urinating in a garage forecourt. Um, if Bob Dylan played to 90,000 people who didn't have enough food and drink in the Isle of Wight, that was a news story. But they didn't write, they didn't have gossip columnists and music columnists who followed pop music. No. And this is what really, really set that whole thing in motion. And you're right, actually, things like Q Magazine came out of There's it. There's a story about the mirror, obviously an apocryphal story about the mirror, <laughs> but... Um, oh, good. It was during that time when pop was moving from the pop pages to the front of the pages, and the news editors and all the nationals were instructed to reach out to the audience, reach out to their constituency, to actually encourage people to call in to say, did you go to school with a pop star? Um, did you know a pop star? Was a pop star your friend? Did you sleep with a pop star? And there's a story about the, the, um, the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror's night editor on a Saturday night gets a call. And, of course, the phone rings, you pick it up. It says, um, is, that the, is that the Daily Mirror? It says, yes, it is. He says, oh, hello, I'm you know, Mr. Numpty from Numptyville, and um, I've invented a time machine. And the guy goes, okay, fine. He says, so what kind of time machine is it? He says, well, it's, a, it's an amazing time machine because it goes forwards in time, backwards in time, and it really is quite an exceptional thing. And um, the guy says, okay, so what would you like me to do? He says, well, could I bring in to show it to you? And the guy says, yes, that'd be fantastic. And the guy says, uh, when, when would you like me to bring it in? And the guy says, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's superb. That's brilliant. Very good. Janice, I want to know your reaction to this. Uh, the day after, how did you feel? Uh, Walking around after... London, what did you... Well, the day after, for me, was 
I worked until five in the morning doing legends and I worked my arse off and then I had to go to my um, uh, christening of my nephew (laughs) and my mother told me off because I fell asleep (laughs) and I went for fuck's sake you said to your mother for over 24 hours and I was I was like that so that was the whole day for me Um, it was like um, an amazing event my nephew's christening and then it was sleep I I can remember people coming up to me because we we did the old grey whistle test which was when I had an audience about two and three quarter million so you anybody wearing a leather jacket you know uh, you would probably know who you were but beyond that in the real world you know, weren't that well known. But we did Live Aid, and I can remember the next day people coming up to me and thinking that I am wanting to, to give me a message for Bob. So could you tell Bob how brilliant it was? And also, could you tell Bob Dylan to bloody well get his act together <laughs> and stop drinking and but Keith Richards was no, was no better. you always know all of those... The people. idea that you're going to just see, you'll yeah. be seeing him next week. Uh, you'll just pass that on, you know. And are you still in contact with Bob? <laughs> <laughs> what, Geldof or Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> My man, because out of all that chaos came Farm Aid. Bob Dylan made a very controversial speech, which went down extremely badly at the time. Yeah, it did. But he said it's uh, basically, I know it's terrific, we're raising money for the people of Africa, but what about, the, as he put it, the starving people who can't pay their mortgages on our own doorstep in America? Mm. And that's what caused Farm Aid. So, well, more power to the old my, boy, my, I reckon. The, 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 it still haunts me because. Whenever I'm right. in a foreign city in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, and flick around the television, if I keep flicking around long enough, I'll see Bob Geldof banging the table. And I'm looking rather puzzled next to him, you know, because it's just one of those little clips. How do you that... feel about that whole day, you? I think it was a privilege to take part, you know, kids? to be there. It was, a magnif- it was a magnificent... Accident, you know. Well, the kids, my kids, the only one of my kids who was around of them, which was about three at the time. So, yeah, she's probably seen bits about us, but they're, they're kind of aware of it. But but ne- they could never be aware of the impact of it because you could only be aware of the impact of it if, as Dylan said, you lived in the world. But, you know, you know my before dad it. hosted. That. Have they ever? Th- you know, is that does that come to be? My dad. Oh. Well, I do, yeah, they, 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 you know, they, they can, they're kind enough to, they're kind enough to show little interest in me, you know. It's, and, and I, you know Proper children. Because <laughs> I know you, Mark, you, you are so proud about all of this. Well, I, I, I just thought it was one of those extraordinary things that I thought we were pretty lucky to be involved, really. And, well, and I also, the other thing that struck me about it as extraordinary is that most of the time, um, subsequently, you've been constantly reminded that things are going to be huge. You know when the media get, well, it's going to be enormous. It's going to be... It's, it's never it's going, going to be... be the, and it, it's always this one. And the interesting thing about this is it was huge. It wasn't... It didn't actually have the television audience. They claimed it did. I, 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 in fact, it wasn't. A lot of it wasn't live in really? America. Uh, no, no, no. A lot of it wasn't actually live in America. It was put out at a delay and to select, um, you know, areas. But it was still an absolutely epic event in terms of what it achieved on the day, the way it changed the relationship between music, charity... Um, the various things it did to the music industry. Um, it, it, it was absolutely momentous. And, and that was a very satisfying side of it, is that even the day after, I thought, 
That was huge. And it just seemed to get huger. And 30 um, years later, we can still pack a pub with a bunch of people. <laughs> you see, normally you'd have, to go and, you'd have to go and sit in the corner of a pub and wait for yeah. somebody to come along and ask you, you know. Should we have questions? Did you have anything to do with it? Instead, we're able to do this. I think we've, I think we've spoken for long enough, sure do you questions? think? Yeah. Any, yeah, I think so. Has anybody, anybody got any questions? questions? I think we might... Uh, have we got a, a yes, roving mic? Shout out, sir. Uh, yeah, I, what I want to know is how come the whistle tester crew got to do it and not people like Mike Reed and Pat Sharp? Oh, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you the answer to that very, very quickly. Is because the BBC at that time only had the old grey whistlers. Now you turn on the television on Friday night, it's wall-to-wall, you know, Willie Nelson, heavy metal documentaries and uh, four-hour uh, profiles of David Bowie. Fabulous. It wasn't like that then. The only thing we had was the old grey whistle test. And um, otherwise, it was Southbank show with Melvin Bragg. So if anybody with a leather jacket carrying a guitar who arrived at Wood Lane was sent down to the, the whistle test office. And broadly, that's what happened. The show, uh, Bob offered the show to Time T's television where his wife, Paula Yates, worked. They immediately said, this is too big for us, you'll have to go to the whistle test, or rather go to the BBC, and the BBC said, go to whistle test. I'm sorry, and we were rung uh, up, David and I were rung up, and Janice, do you remember, and we're told, I'm you are presenting this thing. I say, though, if I can cut across you, and um, I'm sorry, but, you know, Pat Schwab knows fuck all about music. <laughs> OK, no, fair enough. Was, was Pat Sharp up for the job, then? I never even knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it ever was. Absolutely was it? not. No, it no, wasn't. I, but it was I, disagree. I disagree. Do you? I, oh, I, I um, Not that I would ever disagree with Mark <laughs> Ellen, but on yeah. this point. Cat meet pigeons. <laughs> um, this is exciting. <laughs> We've got a scoop here on word in your ear. It's not, not a scoop <laughs> at all, but I have spoken to quite a few people about that particular thing. And they were actually considering it until it was in a national newspaper. Um, they listen, had actually talked about it, and they had talked about Julian Lennon standing in for his father. But, God, you know, as time goes by, the one thing we know about the Beatles is the one thing that makes them so special is they never got back together again. Well, they did, And that was, you know... They did. What do you mean? What do you mean? They, they, they Three anthology? Well, OK. One well, what dead. do you mean, well, OK? One and it was a travesty, and it, and, and it ruined okay. their legacy. But, no, I don't think... Apart, it, apart from that, I you're don't right. Think, I don't think apart it from the fact they did excellent. get back together again... It's turning into a massive ding-dong <laughs> here. <laughs> this punch-up <laughs> punch will continue in the bar, I think. I hope so. Lovely. Because everybody's got homes to go to. And uh, I think we'll wind up at that point, shall we? And say big thank you to Dylan Jones and Janice Long. And thanks so much to all of you for coming. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom does 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.